Chapter 13 Mark my words, we're in for bad times if some man or god doesn't have a heart and take pity on this place. I'll stake my luck on it, the gods have got a finger in what's been happening here. And do you know why? Because no one believes in the gods, that's why. Petronius Arbeiter, the Satyricon, circa 100 C. The next Thursday, we wake early and head east. Along the Columbia Gorge, I crack a window as solar rays warm us. Trees and boulders rush past outside our windows. I reach for my sunglasses on the dashboard. What I hate is that we sanitize history so much, my professor declares. Look at Dr. John McLaughlin. We call him the father of Oregon and speak about his greatness. But here he was, chief factor for the Hudson Bay Company in the Northwest, and a complete traitor not only to his country, but his employers. During early parts of the 19th century, American pioneers desired obtaining Oregon farmland for free, and the company forbade McLaughlin to help or encourage them. However, he sensed a regional power shift and decided to assist the settlers anyway, so as to bake his cake and eat it too. <laughs> this idiom is English, we. Then, as soon as Great Britain abandoned the area, he contacted American leaders and said, Look at me! I am such a Yankee Doodle Dandy who always helped you. But you know, he got what he deserved. Because once Americans controlled the region, they betrayed him in turn, confiscated almost all his land, and he died in absolute misery. <laughs> she concludes with a satisfied sniff. We track the Columbia for almost two hours before turning south. Soon the high desert stretches all around us, and Babette almost explodes with joy. She waves out the window at alluvial deposits and explains conditions that favor sheepherding as opposed to cattle ranches. Everything holds significance for her. The type of sand that blows across shiny blacktop, piled rocks supporting old fence posts, and hillsides desiccated by erosion. By noon, we reach our first destination, a small town called Shanico. It consists of only a few scattered trailers and haphazard structures around a rather ornate two-story brick building. Warm wind filters down the empty street under bright, cloudless skies. It really is fascinating here, though almost a ghost town now. This is the Shanico Hotel, she declares. It still operates. We shall stay here tonight and leave for the camp tomorrow. We step inside, and I gaze around a faded but well-maintained interior. Framed black-and-white photos from Shanico's glory days line the walls. Babette greets the sole occupant, an elderly receptionist with short gray curls. Dr. Ellsworth, she cries with delight. This isn't your usual tour season. I'm so glad you came early. What's the occasion? My professor grins broadly. Oh, you'll know. I love this part of Oregon. I really cannot keep away. The woman reaches out and clasps her hand. Well, it's good you're here. I assume you and this gentleman are staying overnight? Do you have a room preference? It's so hot, Babette exclaims. Which room has the largest tub I could fill with cool water to soak in? The receptionist gives a small shrug. That would be the bridal suite. Babette's smile widens. Then this young man and I will take it. She scribbles on a registration form, then ascends the large staircase nearby while I collect our luggage. Oh, Ross, Babette calls out from the landing. I do hope you remembered to bring some condoms. She breaks into a deep laugh. The receptionist snorts with mirth behind me. 
I discover our bridal chamber is quite an elegant room, which fortunately contains a small cot beside the luxurious queen. I stake out the former while Babette draws water for her bath. That evening, she retires early, and I crack open Jesus and the Zealots by light of a small bedside lamp. It captivates me at once. As I begin this serious reading, the scriptures feel increasingly grounded. What before seemed so ethereal and vague now makes sense. SGF Brandon's steely observations take me to a place of comprehension, where ancient Judean religious strife can be understood, just like any other historical event, with logical, economic, and political explanations. Every leaf I turn feels like stones lifted off my chest, stones I hadn't even realized were there. At last, I fall asleep, face pasted across the open pages as a cool desert breeze wafts through open windows. The next morning, we rise early and eat breakfast in the small cafe downstairs. Babette's knife squeaks against her plate as she saws her eggs and toast into bite-sized pieces. It may not look so impressive today, but this town used to be a great wool-shipping center. Eventually, railroad lines changed trade routes enough that business dried up around 1911. Now, it was named after a German fellow named Schoenakau, one of the early pioneers. Of course, people couldn't pronounce it properly, so the place became called Schoenakau. This man lived quite a life. He fought for the Union during the American Civil War, survived being wounded, moved west, and at last settled here in Wasco County. Years later, as an old man, Schoenakau traveled back to Germany, but while visiting family, the First World War broke out. A return ticket impossible, he stayed for the duration. Then, in 1918, he came home and discovered his land confiscated as a traitor. After much effort, his property was eventually returned. But how horrible! To mistreat an elderly person caught on the wrong side of a war! It reminds me of the endless hunt for Nazis you read about every week in the paper. Well, I respond, somewhat startled. Surely there shouldn't be a statute of limitations on truly terrible acts like war crimes. Of course, Babette agrees. But what angers me is when I read about the arrest of, say, some poor old French railroad worker who signed the manifest back in 1942 for a transport of Jews who later met their death. We call it the banality of evil and condemn such a person to prison for the rest of their miserable life. But who is different? What did your grandparents in Seattle do when their Japanese neighbors were thrown out of their homes, beaten in the streets, and taken off to camps in the wilderness? Did they stand up and object? Did they visit and make sure everyone was treated well? And are your grandparents not good and decent people? I nod, my face numb. They are. Babette grits her teeth. Precisely. We finish our meal in silence, then walk across the street to a small second-hand store called Jones Antiques and Things. The proprietor, a wizened old man, greets us with enthusiasm and shows off his collection of rusty farm equipment. I look over vintage sheep-shearing tools while Babette skims titles on a rickety bookshelf. The man talks eagerly, follows her around the store, asking questions about future tours. Babette answers vaguely, then makes for the exit. Hold on, he cries out. Do you like blackberries? The man rushes into his back room and returns with a glass jar. This jam I canned myself last season, he proclaims. Babette accepts the gift and slips it into her large handbag. She thanks him and turns to go. What about zucchini? The man presses on. Wait, wait! 
He scampers off again and comes back. His gnarled fingers clutch a paper bag full of green vegetables. They're from my own garden! Babette takes them, thanks him again, and we leave. It doesn't take long to reach Antelope, a settlement only somewhat larger than Shanico. After passing through, posted markers direct us toward Wild Horse Canyon. We turn off the paved road and drive about eight miles along a bumpy dirt track with cheerful signs mounted intermittently along the way. Just another mile. Almost there. Around the next corner. Only kidding. Babette shakes her head. I'd almost forgotten how exuberant these Protestants can be. Will your sister be here as well? I ask. <laughs> no. I hope you will be locked in a closet any time my relatives are nearby, French or American. At last we reach the compound. Several buildings are clustered near a wide canyon floor that stretches between rocky outcroppings. A sluggish stream trickles into the reservoir, created by a dam which lingers in great disrepair. Thick green scum covers the stagnant water. On a hillside, numerous small wooden huts sag, some completely fallen over. Babette points towards these shacks. That is where the workers lived. They called themselves Sanyasins, which means a wanderer who seeks the truth. I was curious about what transpired since I last visited, though it saddens me seeing so much neglect. But, c'est la vie, enough nostalgia. Let us discover who is in charge here. Cars are pulling into the lot behind us. People exit and cheerfully greet one another as they mill about. It seems most of them are already acquainted. We enter the main structure, and Babette questions an official-looking woman, the name tag Margaret pinned to her blouse. She directs us toward a man who grins and gestures with a small group of others. I follow, luggage in tow. Excuse me, Babette exclaims. She touches the man's elbow and heartily shakes his hand. I am Dr. Ellsworth from Portland, and just wanted to offer my congratulations on everything you have accomplished here. It's so wonderful to see Christians at work together, transforming new ministries from an absolute den of paganism. Teeth flash as she turns to smile and wink at me. Also, she continues, and with a flourish pulls the blackberry jam from her purse. I brought some preserves. I can't last season to thank you personally. Do you like zucchini? I have some as well, grown in my own garden. I shake my head at her. We leave the grateful man and are directed to our quarters. I find myself in a dormitory room with ten beds but only three other residents, all men in their late forties or fifties. They cast sidelong glances at my patched cargo pants, combat boots, and Chelsea-cut bangs, but otherwise ignore me. Around lunchtime, we meet up in the meal hall, a large room which easily handles the crowd of a couple hundred adults. While we eat, Young Life youth pastors discuss their first summer program in retrospect and explain our group will undergo a condensed version. This means almost every minute of the day fits into a regimented itinerary of group song, Bible studies, and other related activities they call clubs. Babette and I soon weary of this. The landscape around us is so beautiful it seems a sin to spend any more time indoors than necessary. We explore some Rajneeshpuram ruins, hike around the site, and afterwards soak in a large pool sunk into the valley floor that spreads out for miles along a flat topography of dried mud. On our second day, following lunch, we relax on a bench near the dam. Muffled praise songs emanate from a nearby structure. I rub sunscreen on my neck and forearms while Babette yawns, her round face dappled in light beneath a wide-brimmed straw hat. She waves her hands toward the jubilant sound. 
people are so desperate for meaning in their lives. The Reichnicht perm came here searching for it, and now these poor souls do as well. Some people remain within the bounds of one particular religion, and others? The journey leads them from faith to faith the whole lives. San Yasen Zal, though by different names. I've certainly known people like that, I reply. Babette nods. It is common. For me, the seeds of doubt were sown at an early age. The rituals of religion felt so empty, yet I flung myself into them regardless. When I grew older, everything fell into place. There really is no escape. The ways out are all cruel mirages on the walls of a room without doors or windows. Sounds a little bleak to put things that way. If I could recommend one book to you, it would be Nausea by Jean-Paul Sartre. That will make you redefine bleak. But it is wonderful. Sartre explains perfectly what happens when we seek ultimate truth. His protagonist is a historical researcher who seeks to understand the past. Of course, it is futile. He fixates on the hopelessness of this task, which soon drives him mad. It becomes clear reality is just a word we use to ignore the void that stretches beneath our feet. Oh, not a book for the weak-willed. But it might help you understand this tragic farce we call existence. At uh, this I smirk. If it's all just a farce, I don't know why I should bother reading SGF Brandon. It may be useless to seek truth, but we still search for something in history. Imagine you were in the Garden of Eden, and God forbade you to eat from the Tree of Knowledge. What would you do? Babette laughs. I would consume the whole orchard's worth. Just because life is an absurd game doesn't mean you should refuse to play. But consciousness of this, for me at least, has served as a balm. You must draw your own conclusions. Late in the afternoon, my professor and I walk down to the pool and cool off under cloudless heavens. Its concrete edge extends only a couple inches above the flat canyon floor. Floating on my back, I grip the side and look sideways across this vast expanse from the perspective of an insect. The desert air shimmers into silver waves, distorting the far hillsides. I breathe deeply, tiny ripples extending outward. Abruptly, a cheery voice breaks my trance. Excuse me, there's a praise club starting in ten minutes. I raise my head, bringing a pair of legs into view. They are hairy and attached to a red-headed young man in sandals and khaki shorts. He grins down at me. Thank you. I return his smile. Club is like a puzzle, you see, the fellow continues. You gotta get all the pieces together before it makes sense. Babette clears her throat. <clears throat> is this club mandatory? The man frowns. No. Look, I'm sorry, but if you won't attend, I don't think you should be allowed to stay in the pool. I glance over at Babette. She stands at waist depth, wig slightly askew, and floral print swimsuit glistening. With no more debate, we climb out. Under desert heat, I forego drying off and simply pull on a t-shirt while Babette wraps a towel around her stout middle and walks toward the compound. As I lace up my boots, the man sighs. Look, I guess if you're really not going to club, you can get back in the water. I pick up my books. No, that's all right. I have my own Bible study. Not far away, I find a picnic bench under some shade and resume work. This research doesn't go quickly. SGF Brandon intended his book for a highly academic audience, and at several points breaks into French, German, Latin, or Greek, with little provided by way of translation. I take studious notes and frequently look up references in my Bible. Time passes, and before long, people amble past as club lets out. 
I look up, bending my stiff neck, and notice two girls nearby. Distracted, I stretch, then pretend to read again. They enter my peripheral vision, stop, and whisper together. One gestures in my direction. Both wear bright sundresses and are perhaps in their early twenties. Pale hands cover strawberry lips as they mutter with low tones before finally approaching. Excuse me, one begins. She is taller and more tan. The other giggles. I close SGF Brandon and give them my full attention. We just want you to know, the second picks up, that we really appreciate what you're doing. She's right, the first chimes in, fingers clasped together. We're so impressed and moved, honestly, by the great things you're trying to accomplish. A tiny crucifix dangles round her slender golden neck. My forehead furrows. Great things? Oh, comes the second. We mean your work converting heathens in Africa. It sounds so wonderful, but must be dangerous, too. She twists the toes of her flip-flops in loose sand. And then coming back here to continue your studies in seminary school, the first continues. But is your mission work finished, or will you return overseas after graduation? Smiles run wide across both freckled cheeks. I frown again. Wait, tell me, where did you hear this? From your grandmother, of course, the first proclaims. She told us all about you. She's so proud of what you've done, and we just wanted to congratulate you as well. No, I break in. That's not true at all. I'm not a missionary, and I'm not in seminary. In fact, she's not my grandmother either. The girls stare back and forth, to each other, then at me, eyes wide. She's my history professor, I continue. We're just good friends. It's a long story. I'm sorry, says the shorter one, her cheeks now rosy. We made a mistake. Quite, observes her lovely companion slowly. She eyes my religious books and notes strewn across the picnic table. We must have the wrong person. They retreat, and I continue reading, my own face now flushed. Twenty minutes later, Babette walks over, a leer from ear to ear. She sits opposite me, but I refuse eye contact. At this, a low chuckle builds up in her throat. <laughs> you know, Ross, she begins as laughter now fully erupts. After what you told those two young girls, they became so confused. They didn't know what to make of you. But I cleared everything up. All that time away from civilization in dark African jungles turned your head a little. You simply need more time to acclimate and regain your social graces. And of course, I explained you were embarrassed for people to know you came here on vacation with a close relative. You realize how young men can be, I told them. Oh, they were quite sympathetic. She cackles with mirth. Babette, I cut in. You've already gotten a bad name for yourself with club attendance. There's plenty of information I'm pretty sure you'd like kept private around here. You're quite a heretical wolf among sheep in this fold. Aha! Uh -huh, she cries with delight. Now you are threatening me? That is no way for a grandson to behave. The rest of our trip passes with no more rumors spread about my alleged theological career, and we drive home Sunday afternoon. En route, Babette directs me to pull over for lunch in Fossil. We find a small cafe with outside seating and order food off greasy laminated menus. I shade my eyes and squint down the tidy main street. This is such a charming town, my professor declares. It was named because of the rich fossil beds nearby. The John Day formation is splendid. It dates from the late Oligocene and early Miocene epochs. That 
is to say she looks uncomfortable and scratches her neck. Over 30 million years ago. Are you all right? I ask. I am fine, she replies. But a bee stung me yesterday just below my ear. I look and see two tiny pinpricks spaced about an inch apart, surrounded by slight swelling. Looks like it got you twice. Must have been a wasp. After eating hot sandwiches, we continue toward home. The yellow hills and dusty expanses of central Oregon pass outside the car windows. Babette stares ahead, her expression pensive. So much time, she says at last. So much time for every little piece of sediment. Each solitary fragment finds its own place, then waits and builds upon others. Oh, the centuries and pressure required to create it all. And then you think, these formations have stood the same for thousands of years. I know, I feel as though 1942 passed by just yesterday. But to them, it was yesterday. It happened not even a minute ago. She sighs. If you desire happiness, Ross, study geology. History, which you foolishly pursue, will only lead to trouble. Astronomy is good too, but my advice is stick with sediment. It is non-political and an absolute joy. With my own views, I never teach a history class beyond 1939. I refuse and declare anything more recent is not history, but current events. Of course that is not true. The times of Catherine de' Medici and Napoleon are also current events. The Crusades and Protestant Reformation are current events. It is all turbulent and controversial, even if you recognize it now. Look at SGF Brandon, who you now read. The world he analyzed so brilliantly is gone 2,000 years, yet still people argue. I nod. Sweat trickles down my collar. Babette flings up her hand. I wonder, truly, how much you understand. But now I am tired. I must rest for a while. She closes her eyes and soon emits light snores. The road straightens as we pass through a wide, flat expanse covered with brown sagebrush under brilliant blue skies. In the rearview mirror, rounded hills fade smaller and smaller.